This week at Hope Point. So here he's telling the church, because you can count on me to eventually judge the world, keep witnessing, keep singing, keep laboring, endure because God will reward you. It's not your place to worry about the judgment of the world. God will do that. Therefore, you endure. You stay faithful. You keep praying. We trust God to do the judging in His time and His way. This frees us from living in hopelessness because there will be a day where God will say to the world, all those sermons, all those songs, and all those little churches, they were from me. And our job until then is just to keep doing the little songs and the little sermons and the little churches throughout the world and to say it compassionately and courageously with beautiful lives and leave the judging to God. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as our teacher speaks to us from God's holy word. If you were to ask me, what am I most grateful for this Thanksgiving season? My answer might shock you a little bit. In fact, if you, you might not know uh, that I am very serious in this answer, so this is not a joke at all. But the thing I'm most grateful for this Thanksgiving is I am not going to hell. The judge of heaven and earth could have sentenced me to eternal suffering, yet he has chosen me for eternal blessing. More than anybody in this room, I am aware that I deserve hell, and I'm not going there because God has warned me and he's put fear in my heart of living in eternity without him, and I'm going to heaven. People ask, is it wrong to be thankful that you are not going to hell? And I would say if you lived in Florida and you avoided being hit by Hurricane Ian a few months ago, is it wrong to be grateful that you avoided disaster? We should rejoice that we can be free from hell. We're in Revelation 14 and the way that it works, in the, we, you know, we spent um, you know, two weeks looking at verses one through five, and that was a picture of believers in heaven. And now in verses six through 20, we are on earth. So we've gone from heaven to earth, and we're on earth now trying to warn people while they're still alive on earth. These people in verse one through five have already made it. They resisted the beast. They resisted Satan. Now in verses six through 20, um, God is trying to persuade the world Come while there is still time. Revelation 14, 6, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel, gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who has made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, they too will drink the wine of God's fury. They'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor. I, um, you know, out of all the billions of things that God has given me, the number one thing I'm most grateful for is, is heaven. 
I am grateful when Lisa went shopping for groceries on Friday that we had enough money to buy some baby Swiss cheese and some shredded ham. And I'm grateful that this morning when we were cold, we turned on the, on the gas logs and the, the fire came out. And I'm grateful we had a chance to keep our grandson again another, another week. But one day when all the money is gone and my strength is gone and there's nothing but me standing before God, the most important thing I know at that time will be whether or not he will permit me into heaven. And he has made it abundantly clear in scripture that he so loves me and so loves you that he's warning us over and over again of what a life will await us, a horrible life will await us if we reject Christ and we live for the glory of the world instead of the glory of God. So the judge has told us how to avoid judgment and that's why I love the book of Revelation chapter 14. If you need a, an outline for the, what we're going to cover today, it's message from angel one and then followed by angel two, angel three, angel four, and angel five. Do I need to repeat that? It's, that's all we do. Now, we're only going to get through three of the messages of the angels. And the first one is from angel one who says, give God, live to give God all the credit for all that he's done. Then I saw another angel, verse six, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God and give him glory. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the springs of water. It's called, in this, in this chapter, it's called the eternal gospel because it is eternal good news, gospel euangelion. It's eternal good news that the creator of the world wants to work for us, to love us. It's eternal good news. Our response to that is our purpose of life. Fear God and give him glory for saying, I'm looking for a good purpose statement for my life. There it is in verse seven. Fear God and give him glory. That's your purpose of life. One of the wisest men who ever lived was Solomon. He wrote the book of Proverbs and he wrote Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, he lets us know that he was a man who had it all. He was a man who could do it all. He could build, he could read, he had music. And he said at the end of his life, it was all for nothing. It was not fulfilled. And so he wrote in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, what is the purpose of life then if it's not the accumulation of all these things? And this is what he said. Chapter 12, verse 13, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments and this is the duty of all mankind. There's the purpose of life. I mean, what does it mean to fear God? Well, it means to fear what life would be like if you were on your own that he didn't provide the baby Swiss cheese and he didn't provide the warm fire. He didn't provide the clothes. Fear God. What does it mean to fear God? It means to fear what it would be like if he weren't willing to forgive you of your sin. That's what it means to fear God. Our world has no fear of God. As never before, culture is declaring, God, we do not fear you nor respect you. 
The positive way of saying to fear God, there's a, there's a flip side to it. There's another way of saying to fear God is to give him glory. It's the same thing. The negative side, fear, positive is give him glory. So when you look at, you know, what is the word glory? It comes from the Greek word doxa, which means the, the value of something. How much does something weigh? Is it worth? It's, it's significant. So you say, why is God so significant? that we should say his significance is more valuable than anything in the world because of the end of verse seven, because he made, he created everything, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That's why we give him glory, everything, all hope, all blessings come from him. The preoccupation of mankind should be writing a thank you note to God every day. God, thank you. For the things that have come to me from your hand. So to give God glory is to recognize the significance of God. And our world says that God is not significant. How valuable is God? How significant is God? The world says not very. People will be judged not merely because they have done dishonorable things but primarily because they refuse to honor the significance of God. People will be judged not because they stole a million dollars or not because they had a hundred sexual partners. People will be judged because they were so hostile to God, they considered him insignificant. The way Vern Poyther says it is the chief sin of the nations is their refusal to worship the one who has created and sustained them. The greatest offense in the world is to treat God as insignificant. Now that's, what, that's what the world does. We say everything's significant but God. Like, who's going to win the national championship? Will it be Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, or TCU? Unlikely. But who? That's significant. My new house, that's significant. My new car, that's significant. But God who creates the oceans, not significant. All of the things that God has revealed to us in the Bible, no, that's not significant, says the world. How about the gift of Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins? Is that significant? The world says, no, that's not significant like the other things that we are pursuing to live, to live as if God is not significant is a declaration that we are more significant than God. You know, it's amazing when you are watching a football game, maybe college or pros, and especially the pros, and you know, they finish, and then they just go parade all over the field up to the stands like, look at me, yanking their... Helmet off, look what I did. I have a, a friend who's a, a father of a very, very good football athlete. And he's always telling his son, just do, you, just do your job, son, on the field. Nothing else. I mean, have, think about at the end of the sermon, if I finish the amen, I grab my clicker, spike it. <laughs> look at me. Look what I said today. But that's the world. 
I'm significant, not the one who has allowed me to do it. A heart surgeon is great, and we have them around here and at the church, and I'm exceedingly grateful for them, but they didn't make the heart. So they're not as significant as the heart maker by a long shot. The purpose of life is to enjoy the great things of this world and then to turn around and spend the rest of your life writing thank you notes to God. Lisa and I were riding across the dam on Lake Murray yesterday, bringing, taking our grandson back um, to, his, to Anna, our daughter's house. And we look at, we've seen many sunsets that beautiful on the lake, and, but this one was especially striking because it sort of had that resemblance of a cross. And we're looking at that and we're just thinking, God, thank you for the sun. Thank you for colors. Thank you for the time of year. Thank you for eyeballs that can see this brain that gets stimulated with excitement over all of these sensations that are going on when we look. But God, thank you for the cross that we get to, one day when we die, go beyond that sunset and see the God who painted that because your son hung on the cross. We thought of John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why will God unleash his wrath on the world one day right there? is because the world says that what Jesus did on the cross is insignificant. And that is why wrath is coming to the world. So that's angel number one. This is the message from angel two. Second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of their adulteries. This is the first time in Revelation we've seen the word Babylon, so it might confuse you. In the 6th century BC, the Jews were captured by Babylon. They couldn't escape for 90 years, 70 years. And so from that point on, the whole world, especially Jewish Christians and other New Testament Christians, they just referred to the, the system of the world as Babylon, like but the world is stronger than we are on our own. The world is strong and becoming increasingly stronger. The anti-Christian world is very strong. And so they just called it, they call the, the whole fault ideological system of the world Babylon. And it looks like it cannot be stopped. It's the system. That's what Babylon is. It's the system of the world. So whenever... The, you hear somebody, you feel like you're hearing this thing from the world that says you have the right to immerse yourself in drugs and unrestrained sexual pleasure outside of marriage. When you hear talk like that, that's the system telling you that. That's the world, that's Babylon. Whenever you hear, I can do whatever I want, that's the system, that's Babylon. And so here in this verse, we're amazed that this very powerful system will be brought down. That's something the early church could never conceive of, that the Roman government would be brought down, that the system would be brought down, that the man would be brought down. 
It's interesting to see how the destruction of the system is described here. That it will fall, and the system that's going to fall is the same system that made all the nations drunk with its adulteries. The world system has dedicated all of its energy persuading people to deny God. Here, drink this. Drink this rebellion. Drink this life of selfishness. And here, with the second angel, there's going to come a time where God says to the world, world, you made everybody that followed you drink. And now I'm going to make you drink something. I'm going to make you drink my wrath, which is described by the message of the third angel. The third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So you can't miss the contrast here between verse 9, where you know, Babylon is making the nations drink all sorts of perversion and rebellion. And then God says, yes, Babylon system, now I'm going to make you drink. I'm going to make you drink my wrath. What a shock will this will be to those who are in Babylon laughing all the way throughout 6,000 years that it doesn't matter what Noah preached. It doesn't matter what Jeremiah preached. It doesn't matter what Jesus did. It doesn't matter what the New Testament church preached and wrote. We will never fall. We will never fall. And it's interesting. The trade-off is terrible. For 6,000 years, the world says we're getting away with it. We're drinking in all of the sin that we want in exchange for an eternity of drinking the wrath of God. That, that's not a good trade. Drink sin for a season. Drink wrath forever. The unending pain of, of the world's judgment is described in verse 10. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast. People ask, as I alluded to last week, why would you preach on Revelation? And the answer is that, those two verses. To warn to partner with God in so loving the world that while people are still alive on earth, they may receive and hear the warning, turn from sin, turn from the system, turn from Babylon, because you want to turn from the judgment to come. I cannot emphasize to you enough how difficult it is for me to read and to stand by Literally, by these verses. I've been reading the Bible for 40 years since I was a freshman in college. I can't tell you how many times I've read the Bible all the way through. How many times I've read this verse. 
I'm as uncomfortable with these two verses now as I was when I first encountered them. But I have endless joy in preaching today to tell you that this does not have to be your future. That's the joy of church today. Because you're alive. You have time to repent. This does not have to be your future. You don't have to go to hell. Through the years, people have read these verses and they got a lot of questions about them. Number one is, it's a, is this a literal fire? Now, you've seen me all the way through since last November. Every time we come to one of these dramatic things, say, here I am. Well, that's symbolic. So now you say, Richard, do you, you think that's symbolic? Well, I have to stay true to my hermeneutic, right? Yes. See how I've said it every other time. But what, I can also tell you what else I've said. That all the symbols in Revelation point to a reality that's greater than the symbol. So, there's something worse than fire. And we just can't conceive of it. So that's why the writer uses fire. But the emphasis is not on the fire. It's emphasis on the fire that never goes out. The eternal suffering of hell. Now, there have been people throughout church history, false teachers, who are uncomfortable with this verse. I am. But because they're uncomfortable with it, they just decide to change it. And they develop this doctrine called annihilationism, which says when God judges, he causes the soul and the life to disintegrate and they're just no more. So they'll not suffer forever. That's not what this verse says. The smoke of their torment will rise forever. There will be no rest for them. I might want it to be that. That's not what it says. You know, it's a sobering thought when you think about the cruel dictator, a cruel dictator like Nero. You think about this verse and you think about Nero. First century, they got the first, the, first, the first people who read the book of Revelation under Nero. He lit the streets of Rome with the bodies of burning Christians that he had impaled on stakes and covered in oil. And he thought he, being part of the system, the man, Babylon, would rule forever. He died at age 37. And he entered into torment. And he is experiencing the same torment now as he did the day he started. It's forever and ever and ever. That's the hell of hell as it's unending. I think what even bothers me more about the unending nature of hell as a Western thinker is exactly how the sentence of hell will be carried out. It says that they'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence, verse 10, in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. In the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Hard to underline that. But this is the Word of God. I have to not underline it because I can hardly take it. But people think that hell is the absence of God. 
That's not true. Hell is the absence of God's mercy. It's all of the wrath of God, none of the mercy of God. You can imagine a huge building that's a mile long and on this side of the building, at the end is a room full of festivities, people that are glad, enjoying food and drink and laughter and virtuous pleasure. On the other end of the building is a room of agony and torment, anxiety and weeping, no food, no pleasures, just weeping. Same building, same owner. Jesus Christ owns both heaven and hell. He is in both places. Verse 10. In one place, he is showing his infinite kindness. And in the other place, he's showing his infinite wrath. So no one in this room, including me, is comfortable with that. If you are comfortable with that, something is wrong with you. But there's a big difference in being uncomfortable than in being unbelieving. So yes, there are parts of the Bible that make me uncomfortable. But I don't not believe them. You know, Jesus had no problems using hell as a motivation to leave the path of rebellion. My evangelism professor, Roy Fish, in seminary, somebody asked him, Dr. Fish, do you believe it's wrong for somebody to come to Christ because they're afraid of hell? That sounds selfish. He said, what else would you expect from a lost person other than to be selfish? It's a great reason to come to Jesus. I don't want to go to hell. It's a good starting place. Jesus talked about hell more than any other teacher in the Bible. This is just one example. Matthew 18, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. How far does Jesus want you to take this? Pretty far. A few years ago, you know, having been here 20 years, I have known many, many college students that have come through these doors and boy, do they face all sorts of temptation. And I was discipling a young man who was so precious to confide into me and some of his friends. He was controlled by Babylon, controlled by the system. He was wrapped up in pornography. And so, and a night like tonight will be cold. He and his friends got together and built a fire. And every time he turned on his computer, he went straight to pornographic websites and all of his friends gathered around him the night that he threw his computer in the fire. And he said this, better that my computer burn for a night than I burn forever. So Jesus says to you today, please don't go to hell. The book of Revelation says to you, please don't go to hell. This is why the Bible is written. 
This is why it's full of good news because it warns us in time, please don't go to hell. This is why we pray for our enemies. This is why we love our enemies. We don't want anybody in hell. This is why the church dedicates millions of dollars and hours to send missionaries to drill water wells, to provide medical care, to house orphans, to plant new churches and to train evangelists. It's why we gather every week one more time to hear the old message, to invite people to come, to invite neighbors to come, co-workers to come, because one more time we want to tell the whole world, you don't have to go to hell. But as you know, most of the world has not listened to the warnings of God throughout the history. The system has owned them. It controls them. They belong to Babylon. They are drinking like Babylon drinks. And so they reject our message. And that's why the writer says to the church in the first century and to the 21st century, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Four times in the book of Revelation, he will say something and then he says, and because of what I just said, this is why you must endure. So here he's telling the church, because you can count on me to eventually judge the world, keep witnessing, keep singing, keep laboring, Endure because God will reward you. It's not your place to worry about the judgment of the world. God will do that. Therefore, you endure. You stay faithful. You keep praying. We trust God to do the judging in his time and his way. This frees us from living in hatred. This frees us from living in hopelessness. Because there will be a day where God will say to the world, all those sermons and all those songs and all those little churches, they were from me. And our job until then is just to keep doing the little songs and the little sermons in the little churches throughout the world. And to say it compassionately and courageously with beautiful lives and leave the judging to God. Christians of all people need to remember that the end of the world is not the end of the world. We serve a God who wins. That's why we can serve him in the world even when we suffer loss. Because we know that judgment is coming. We devote our lives to warning the world, praying for the world, pleading for the world. We pray for the world to be spared from the same judgment that should have been ours, but is not because of Christ. So now is not the time for the judgment of God. Now is the time for serving with hope and courage and compassion, knowing that a fierce judgment will come. Now is not judging time, it's warning time. Now is serving time. 
Now is praying time. Now is preaching time. Now is singing time. Now is giving time. Now is going time. Now is the time to sacrifice. Now is the time to suffer. And now is the time to die. And that's why John concludes this part of Revelation. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. So seven times in the book of Revelation, God uses, it's called a, it's a benediction, seven blessings. Like you remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, blessed are. So seven times Jesus said, blessed are somebody. This is the second of the seven. And he said, blessed are those who die in Christ because of two things. They're going to rest and they're going to have reward. Two reasons. When Jesus says blessed, it's his version of happiness. Can't be found anywhere in the world. It's a Jesus kind of happiness is the word blessed, makarios. And you can be happy because of two realities, because of your rest and your reward. This is precious verse. John is writing to real people who are about to experience a real death. And he says, for you, there's a real happiness because of your rest that's coming and your reward. Think about the concept of rest first. It's exactly opposite of what we saw is going to happen to the world. No rest for the Babylon, the people of Babylon. No rest ever again in eternity. For us, it's nothing but rest in heaven. I don't know of a more comforting thought in all of the world than for those who die that they are at rest. No more turmoil. No more anxiety. No more bad days. All broken hearts healed. There are people on this earth who have known nothing but pain for most of their existence. Johnny Erickson Tata, 60 years now in a wheelchair, paralyzed from the neck down. And when she dies, she'll know nothing but rest. I think about believers all around the world that they're the, they're the only family in a village of, of hostile unbelievers for their entire existence on earth as followers of Christ, they are surrounded by threat and hostility. One day they'll die and there'll not be any more threats. Nothing but peace and rest. There's coming a day where you will never be confronted by crushing circumstances again that you cannot control. It might be physical pain that you're enduring or emotional pain, rejection by someone that you love deeply, or impossible deadlines at work. It might be the crushing weight of a poor self-image of a high school student or a lonely college student overwhelmed by their major and wondering, did I even, should I come here? For a husband and wife, the stress of trying to pay bills at the end of the month where there's not enough money or the stress of waiting for a medical diagnosis. Did I make the right choice? How's it going to turn out? These are very real things that steal our joy and that create stress. 
And the point is in this verse, there is nothing in heaven that will ever cause one moment again of stress. Some of you have probably had that perfect vacation where for some reason it just all went right. You were able to get away, unplug, and you went to wherever. And for that seven-day period, you didn't think about work. You didn't think about nothing. It just was bliss. You just multiply that by forever. And that's heaven. That sense of rest that Jesus Christ has purchased for you. Never again will you worry. No frustration, no regret, no shame, no fear, no dread. Never a feeling that something is incomplete or that you are incomplete. Rest. To every believer in this room today who says, I just want to rest. To every exhausted single mother. To every grieving widow. To every weary father working two jobs. To every persecuted village pastor who cries out, I just won't rest. God says rest is on the way. That's the truth of Revelation 14, 13, and 14. But not only is rest coming, reward is coming. It says their deeds follow them. That's good news because you've been forgiven of all your bad deeds. This can only be talking about your good deeds. Say it this way, without the lines. Because you have been forgiven and cleansed by Christ, everything you have done for God will be rewarded by him. I love how Dennis Johnson puts it. Though our deeds have been done in a body defiled by sin, the grace and power of the risen Lord transform those deeds into thank offerings that are pleasing to the Father. Look at my little sermon. God is going to reward me for it. Every keystroke this week. Done by sinful hands, cleansed by Christ, rewarded by God. This is so important for those who feel like they're living a what is it worth life? I raised my kids in church. I prayed with them at home. We did Bible stories. I lived, I tried to live before them a Christ-honoring life, and when I blew it, I apologized and said that wasn't what Christ would have me do. And now, they've turned from God and they're running with the world. What was it? What were all those nights about praying with them? Or a missionary who says, I moved my family to a remote jungle. We opened our home to all the villagers. On church, we held a little church service and we taught them about Jesus and we taught them in the week how to grow crops. We stayed there eight years. It was so hard on our family that we eventually, just for emotional relief and the sake of our marriage, we had to come home. We were out of funds. People forgot about us. And, and yet not one villager in all of that time ever gave his life to Christ. 
They continued their animistic religion and they worshiped their pagan gods. Nobody came to Jesus. What does it matter? Or the man who said, I worked 40 years at the company. Every day I got up at six o'clock and went to work. I didn't make much money, but I provided for my family and I brought money to church each Sunday and brought it in the offering box and I served and I gave my life and then something happened at the church one day and it split and the church was no more. I'd given my whole life for the church. What does it matter what I did? And here's God's reply based on this verse. I saw it all. Every effort, every breath, every sigh, every surrender, every baby held, every diaper changed, every flip switched, switch flipped, every sermon preached, every guitar strummed, every microphone held, every door opened, every cup of coffee served, every meal cooked, every mile driven, every dollar given, when you stand before God, He will recall every millisecond of your service to Him and He will reward it all. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.